1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is M. David Rudd, a globally recognized expert in the field of suicidology. Dr. Rudd recently completed eight years as the president of the University of Memphis after announcing last year that he intended to return to his work as a distinguished university professor of psychology. Dr. Rudd holds a bachelor's degree from Princeton and a master's and PhD degrees in psychology from the University of Texas. While the 12th president of the University of Memphis, he continued funded research and maintained his affiliation with the National Center for Veteran Studies at the University of Utah, which he co-founded and has served as scientific director. After a one year sabbatical abroad, Dr. Rudd will transition to a faculty position at the University of Memphis in 2023 to continue his research. We'll be talking about the big picture of collegiate academics and athletics, as well as the specifics of Dr. Rudd's research of suicide risk and prevention during the next 52 minutes. David Rudd. Welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, thanks Chris, good to, good to be with you. No, I appreciate your time, sir. So David, you've just concluded eight years as the president of the University of Memphis. Early on, you led the process to identify the university's mission and values. Why did you set that as a priority? What mission and what values were ultimately chosen? And why were they the right ones for University of Memphis?
2: Yeah, well, I think, you know, anytime you, you lead an organization, an entity, Any kind of unit, and and this you know goes back certainly uh, to my days uh, in the military many years ago. um, Identification and clarification of values are always a critical part of that uh, to make sure that at every level uh, of the institution uh, that people make decisions that are consistent uh, with those values. Um, And and I think it offers uh, certainly offers a foundation uh, that that really is critical for movement uh, for an organization. So. through the process and and really looked at kind of what our role is in higher education, where we fit uh, in higher education, what was central uh, in terms of our service to the community, the state, uh, and the nation, and ultimately uh, identified a cluster uh, of values that were consistent with that. Uh, Those those values uh, were accountability, uh, collaboration, uh, diversity, uh, inclusion, student success, uh, service, uh, and innovation. Uh, so if you look at um, if you look at the university uh, and the breadth of the university uh, and how we deliver our mission in terms of education, uh, knowledge creation, uh, and broader service, um, all of those elements cut across those six domains.
1: What lessons are there in that choice and that process for individuals between the next steps forward with the goal of learning more about persevering through diversity and becoming more empowered?
2: Well, if you look at uh, you know if you look at the last three years uh, in particular uh, in higher education, you know I, I would argue uh, pretty adamantly uh, that they are uh, almost entirely about persistence and resilience uh, in terms of uh, in terms of universities and colleges uh, around the country. Students have, have had to endure significant challenges. I don't know that we've had. Uh, for uh, college age students uh, that we've had the breadth and depth of challenges um, that you've seen over the course of the last three years uh, with COVID uh, and the the subsequent economic ripples that they've had to grapple with. Um, And and that's a part of building resilience. I think people have really demonstrated uh, resilience in the face of considerable adversity. Now it's revealed significant mental health challenges, uh, particularly for young people. Uh, in this country uh, and, and revealed, I think, probably some lack of uh, capacity in terms of our ability to serve the needs um, of individuals uh, in terms of mental health challenges uh, nationally. So it, it's it's it been a, a significant uh, challenge, but also, I think, uh, been an important one for us to, to try to address.
1: Well, to that point, the one thing I've been saying for well over a year now on the show is as bad as COVID has been. The one positive thing is that it's put a spotlight on mental health in a positive way in terms of something we can now talk about. You don't sort of hide it or forget about it or just whisper at the kitchen table. And to your point with the young folks today, I look at my daughter who spent her last year and a half of high school in her bedroom. You know, now how she's supposed to go transition into what I'll call the real world, the academic world and get back into it when she hasn't known anything for the last year and a half, which was, you know, 10% of her life. So, you know, thanks to folks like you who have done the work you have, you know, I think we have a solid foundation, but it certainly has shown some chinks in, in, in the armor of the system. Um, but at least we're now talking about and advancing that forward.
2: You know, and, and absolutely. And I would also uh, I would also uh, emphasize it really has required us to innovate uh, in response to these challenges. You know, if you look at the simple reality now in terms of the utilization of telehealth and digital therapeutics uh, for mental health, um, they were almost non-existent three years ago. Um, and a part of that was because of barriers that were created by the FDA uh, in licensing uh, boards nationally for clinicians that really limited our capacity to deliver uh, any kind of treatment alternatives, uh, any kind of support alternatives digitally or through telehealth. All of those were removed uh, during the pandemic and ultimately, um, these alternatives were found to be as effective, or for some individuals, more effective. So it really has moved the field forward in a significant way um, that that is arguably unprecedented.
1: And as you move forward, your top priorities during your tenure, tenure were student success, research growth, and community partnerships. The focus on student success is easy for me to understand, as is the research growth. But what was so important about community partnerships? Especially corporate relationships, they chose to devote time to that objective.
0: Yeah,
2: that, that really is an important thing. I, you know, for if you look at an institution like the University of Memphis specifically, um, it really is a, an institution that uh, the heart of the mission is service to the community, um, and that means regionally uh, and across the state of Tennessee, but but also nationally. Um, And and a part of uh, what was important for us were to build opportunities uh, for students. I don't know of a community that needs a university uh, more than Memphis. Um, It needs those students to help develop uh, and provide workforce. It needs those students to help solve local, regional, state problems. And so we felt like it was important to really create opportunities to create partnerships that started at the undergraduate level and then led to graduate opportunities and employment um, and create that pipeline. So we did it from the very foundation, from the very start of their experience in terms of internship opportunities that escalated and grew over time that ultimately created a career pathway, uh, whether it was moving into a job uh, immediately after graduation or moving on to graduate or professional school.
1: And speaking of corporate relationships, under your tenure, the University's Research Foundation launched a private company that's led to many new partnerships. Are there specific companies or specific industries that you sought to team up with? And if so, talk about how, how and why they were chosen. Yeah,
2: we we looked at, um, so one of the one of the primary challenges in Memphis has always been workforce um, development. It uh, really has been availability of um, a workforce is adequately educated and trained to, to meet certain mission uh, the c- certain missions of various companies uh, around the Memphis area uh, in West Tennessee uh, in general um, so we worked with those companies uh, and looked at alternatives for how to create these pathways one of the things that came up is there were a lot of barriers as a public university about our ability Um, to provide um, workforce uh, for these companies. And it was easier to actually start a private company um, that could subcontract with those different entities and then hire our students. So what we did is we created a company um, called the University of Memphis Ventures. Um, It's solely owned um, by the University of Memphis Research Foundation. And what that company does is it creates contracts to provide services for a range of companies in Memphis. And so our biggest partner is FedEx. Um, And for FedEx, we do a couple of things. We provide um, services through an IT call center, but we also provide services through a data analytics center. Um, Those jobs pay between 15 dollars and $26 an hour for students. So the goal for us was to reduce the amount of time that students had to work externally, so they could focus more specifically on school. Um, so if they were making fifteen to twenty-six dollars an hour, they're not having to work twenty-five to thirty-five hours a week. They can we cap their work hours at twenty, um, and this was a part of the broader effort for us to improve overall retention and graduation rates. So the company actually has been remarkably successful. It's been in place for six years now. Um, We have contracts with uh, with FedEx, um, AutoZone, uh, St. Jude, um, Raymond James, which is an investment uh, house, and we do data analytics as a part of that, employs uh, close to 500 students. The annual gross revenue of the company is over $6 million a year now. So if you look back, um, over the course of the last six years, this company has, has uh, generated in the ballpark of about 35 to $40 million. All of that money has gone directly to students. And the other great thing I would tell you, Chris, is every one of those students, when they finish and graduate, they've had multiple job offers, but they've all had job offers from the company that they work for. Um, as a part of uh, University of Memphis Ventures. It's been, it's arguably been the most innovative and one of the most impactful things we've done.
1: I mean, congratulations on those anchor clients or partnerships you have. And I've never heard of anything like this. Does any other university have something like this?
2: We were the first to do it. I, I don't, I'm not aware of, now I will tell you that we had been contacted over the course of the last five years by a number of universities looking for a, uh, looking to replicate uh, and duplicate the model that we used, um, it just provides you so much freedom and flexibility uh, if it's a private company. And it's, a, it's a private company that has its own board of directors, um, and, uh, it, but the, the only restriction that it has is it can only employ students. Uh, and so eventually, uh, if the university sells the company, uh, it would retain that restriction. Uh, that it can only it can only hire our students is uh, a part of its core mission.
1: Well, as you talk to the universities, make sure you license your intellectual property there to help keep that revenue stream going for you. You got to annuitize the business. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the university has also created a global campus. Is that something that most universities are going to have to do as a matter of survival in the post-COVID world?
2: Yeah, no question about it. We we actually th- this was this was hotly debated. I did it my first year. Uh, as president it was done uh, nine years ago, um, it was hotly debated and, 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 and there was a lot of concern about creating a global campus and expansion of um, online education. We have been in the online education business for three decades, but it wasn't a major part of what we were doing. Um, but what became clear is, um, is uh, you look at at what will be over the course of the next five years contraction in college-age students, the majority of the growth um, in universities and colleges nationally is actually in returning adult students. They're actually students who, for whatever reason, didn't pursue a college education, uh, partially completed a college education, and and then want to return. Um, And many of those want to do it, uh, in some in some online capacity, some digital capacity. So we created uh, University of Memphis Global, uh, and uh, as a as a function of U of M Global, uh, we decided to to grow uh, that entity and that division entirely internally. So we didn't we didn't hire out to a, a provider. We developed it, grew it on our own. It is now seventeen percent of our entire student base. Um, And it is easily the fastest growing element um, of the university. So if you look at our budget, when I started uh, the University of Memphis budget um, nine years ago, it was about 490 million. Today it's over 700 million. And the the actual um, overall, uh, the overall value of the university exceeded a billion dollars. U of M global is a big part of that. Um, And that growth, Um, is is really second to none. Um, It is remarkable. This year it's gonna grow about 10%. um, And in in contrast to that, the undergraduate base of the university will actually contract a little bit because of the decline of college-age students nationally. Um, So it arguably um, was essential and critical uh, in terms of doing that uh, almost a decade ago.
1: Let's go back to the area of student success. You spearheaded the creation of a new division of student success and developed the university's first integrated enrollment, retention and graduation plan. What does that mean for students and prospective students?
2: Well, it was a it was a move. So if you look back at our values um, and, and one of those core values um, is uh, student success, that, that we were gonna do a better job of tracking student outcomes and becoming um, accountable uh, for student outcomes. Um, Our graduation rates had not been particularly stellar uh, over the years. Retention rates were below where they should be. Uh, And a part of the challenge at the university was the fact that many of our students had limited financial support um, and financial resources and had to work significant um, hours in addition to attending school. And, And the argument was that maybe they were not capable given those constraints of doing better. And and my argument was ultimately the university is responsible uh, to do better and should be held accountable uh, to that. And so uh, we created the division to look specifically at progress, retention, and movement year over year. Uh, We started tracking individual students um, and uh, and started tracking students on a semester-by-semester basis did a range of things uh, in terms of lowering, containing um, any cost escalation uh, for the university as a whole over the course of the last, uh, over the course of those eight years, uh, five of those years, we had no tuition increase. Um, In the previous, uh, the last time that there had been no tuition increase prior to my second year was almost four decades uh, at the university that it had gotten into the habit of just simply Um, Elevating tuition as a way of covering costs, not having internal accountability, uh, which was really problematic. Um, And as a result of containing cost and focusing specifically on students, uh, we've had the last four years have been the highest graduation retention rates in the history of the university. Um, And are part of the reason the university moved this past year, uh, moved from a Carnegie R2 university to a Carnegie R1 university. Uh, that's a big part of that success.
1: And sticking with the tuition, we often hear from students and parents that university tuition is just too high. What's your perspective? Is a university degree a good value these days? And why do we hear so many people say it isn't what it used to be?
2: Um, yeah, I actually, I would agree uh, that university tuition is too high. Um, now, I would tell you uh, at the University of Memphis, um, our tuition uh, in a relative sense is remarkably low. So if you look at the university as regionally or nationally, um, our tuition uh, is remarkably low relative to other universities, both public and private. Um, but I would agree, I, I think a part of the challenge has been that universities have simply increased cost as a way of handling uh, demand in terms of uh, in terms of delivering education rather than being held accountable. Uh, for outcomes. Um, and that's a real problem. So if you look at if you look at the University of Memphis, I think it's a great model for an urban um, metropolitan university uh, that that has a that fifty percent of our students are first generation students. Um, and if you look at our cost containment efforts, the university has never done better in terms of outcomes. We've never had more students graduate, higher retention rates. And the overall growth of the university's revenue has never been stronger. And that's been because we've contained costs that allowed students to be successful and stay in school versus having to leave to get jobs to pay for elevated costs. So there there really is a balance to it. But, my yeah, I have a very serious concern that in many markets, um, people are paying dramatically too much for higher education.
1: So I'm guessing other universities are not calling you for your blueprint and how you're keeping your costs down. No no, no,
2: no, no, they're not. And, and when you when I start to talk about uh, cost containment uh, with leaders in higher education, those are always brief conversations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so sticking to tuition, the University of Memphis changed the definition of in-state and out-of-state tuition during your time as president. How and why did that happen? And do you think other universities should follow suit?
2: Well, I think I think uh, one I would say yes. Um, um, other universities sh- should follow suit. But let me let me drill down a little bit and explain what we did. So, what was remarkable uh, is if you look where Memphis is positioned, uh, Memphis uh, is at an intersection uh, of four states, and it's in far west Tennessee. It's not going to grow as a university at a state level. So it's not gonna grow by serving just Tennessee students. And, and it's coupled with the reality that there is significant decline in the number of available graduating high school students over the course of the next five years. It's what's called a demographic cliff in higher education. And so the only way for the university to grow was to grow out of state. And so what we did is we took a the out-of-state tuition um, the out-of-state tuition was um, almost 50 percent higher uh, for out-of-state students in it in relative to in-state students and so what we did is we did an experiment we we did a 200 mile radius that cut across four different states lowered the out-of-state tuition um, by half um, what it was and so it was just marginally higher than the in-state rate and when I say marginally, a couple of thousand dollars. So it was marginally higher than the in-state rate. And, um, and to see what would happen. The largest growth for the University of Memphis, secondary, second only to our own line growth, has been out-of-state students because of that. Now, here's what was interesting. Uh, when our board asked me, isn't that a significant risk I explained to them that we only had a few hundred out-of-state students because the cost was so great. We only had to get in the first year to cover the cost of the, of the cut. We only had to get about 60 extra students in order to cover the cost of the reduction. Um, and since then, um, we've had very significant out-of-state growth. We're now in, we have students from all 50 states. Um, our application pools in on the west coast and east coast have grown significantly. And it was all a cost-driven issue. Um, And and I would encourage other universities, if you think about it, you ought to look at actually how many out-of-state students do you get. Um, And if you only have a handful, um, you know that you're clearly overpriced. Um, And so I think most universities are starting to look at in-state, out-of-state rate differentials, starting to look at the math about how to do that and recognize that you've got to be competitive nationally uh, if you want to grow.
1: And should we be forgiving student debt? And if so, what would be the best approach for doing that?
2: Well, I I would argue um, there are a lot of um, economic issues uh, at play about forgiving student debt. Um, And and it's it's a more complex issue, um, given the nature of how debt is financed. Um, than simply forgiving student debt. I I would not support uniform um, reduction uh, in student debt just across the board. I mean, there certainly are probably um, some high need areas where we could do some things uh, that would be effective uh, in terms of uh, student debt, capping student debt, um, dealing more effectively with predatory lending. Um, Part of what I'm concerned about is it's, it's about student debt where students weren't successful so it's it's people that accumulate significant amount of student debt but never graduate those are uh, institutions that me, need to be held accountable i think there probably are a couple of steps um, at an institutional level uh, that need to occur before you think about forgiving student debt and then i would only look at certain sub subgroups with high econ- with, with really high financial, concern, significant economic concerns before doing it.
1: We also hear from many people and quite often from people on the academic side who complain about the outsized role of athletics in collegiate life. Why are athletics so important and you think they have too much clout?
2: Um, Yeah, they have far too much clout Um, and they cost far too much money. Uh, Now, what's interesting is certainly we have leveraged in my tenure um, at the university, we leveraged athletics to raise fundraising uh, overall. Um, So I would tell you when I started nine years ago, um, 75% of all money raised was for athletics. Um, When I finished this last year, 75% of all money we raised was for academics. And we doubled the annual amount raised. And we used athletics to increase our visibility to help us raise academic money. Um, And so The the problem with it um, is the cost have just um, escalated profoundly over the last decade, decade and a half. Um, And there are just a handful of universities that can afford uh, the excessive cost. Um, I don't know that it is that if you look at students, students are starting to question those costs. As you know, a lot of that is paid for by student fees, a significant portion. Uh, at the University of Memphis, about $16 million a year um, in athletics are paid for by student fees. Uh, Students need to ask those questions. And some universities are actually a couple of universities in California uh, where students have started to question whether or not they want their student fees to support athletics. Uh, there's There's a better model. But as you know, we have moved to now, which is essentially a professionalization of football and basketball those costs are more than likely going to continue to go up um, over time. Um, and so it is going to um, it's going to result in a number of universities deciding they're not going to be able to compete at the highest level uh, as a result of the cost.
1: Are you sure you didn't go to business school somewhere along the way? I mean, your, your grasp <laughs> of balance sheet and cost analysis is something I haven't heard of.
2: Well, Chris, I tell you, I worked, uh, after I got out of the Army, uh, I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Uh, I worked for 10 years in a tertiary care medical center. I ran a a unit, uh, both inpatient and outpatient, and that's where I learned financing, uh, was in running medical services. Um, You have to worry about cost.
1: You learned it well, that's for sure. (laughs) Thanks. We've been talking to M. David Rudd, expert in the field of suicidology and former president of the University of Memphis. We'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now, she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time
0: on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, Just Be You, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on the Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to next steps forward to reach chris meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: we are back i'm chris meek host of next steps forward and we're with M. David Rudd, distinguished university professor of psychology and former president of the University of Memphis. David, I understand that you're writing a book and the title is Perpetual Crisis. Why'd you choose that title?
2: Well, uh, it's a a really simple thing. Um, Over the course of uh, my tenure uh, as a university president, we had a crisis, um, arguably uh, at least one every couple of months. Uh, for the university. Uh, if you look at uh, being a university president uh, today in in an age of um, of social media, uh, most issues uh, have political overtones uh, and become crisis uh, in nature. Um, and you have to be sensitive to that, recognize that in order to uh, address it and respond to it.
1: And what sorts of crisis did you face as university president and how much of your time and energy did, and focus did they require?
2: Well interestingly enough, you, you had uh, you had asked a question earlier um, about athletics. Um, a full forty percent of those crises revolved around athletics. Um, and uh, it, and it's because of the visibility of athletics. And so you're talking about hiring and firing coaches. You're talking about players getting uh, getting into trouble of, of some sort. Uh, you're talking about issues uh, with fans and and, and others. Uh, just the visibility of it, uh, in the financing of it, uh, creates crises on the athletic front. And then, on the uh, if you look at the rest of the campus, few of those, if any, were were significant academic challenges. Um, they were predominantly about social issues uh, nationally. Uh, if you look at um, if you look at uh, the U.S. today, I don't know that uh, certainly in my lifetime, I don't know we've ever been more divided politically. Um, it's a remarkably divisive time, and a lot of the challenges that I had to deal with revolved around uh, revolved around race. Um, that's been a challenge nationally. Revolved around sexual assault, and that's been a challenge nationally, and revolved around money, uh, and that's been a challenge nationally uh, in terms of in terms of economic inequity. Um, and so, uh, it is a constant as uh, a university president that you're going to have to address. To talk about, respond to those kinds of issues.
1: And based on conversations you had with other university presidents, do you think the time and energy you had to devote to crisis was about average, less or more than others?
2: You know, I think it's about average. I mean, I, if you look at the average tenure of a university president, um, it used to be in the seven, eight year range a decade ago. Uh, today, it's it's a little under five years. Um, and so the, the tenure of presidents has declined significantly over time. I, and I think it's a function of these demands. It's a, it's a uh, you know, it is, I, I wouldn't tell you um, it's a hard job. I, I worked harder when I was, you know, when I was going to school and, and working nights in high school. Um, I would tell you it's a complex job. Uh, it's not a hard job. It's a complex job. Um, and the complexity of it uh, is a challenge, and it is a highly politicized job, even if you don't want it to be. Um, I certainly uh, never wanted to be any anything remotely approaching a politician, um, but university presidents are looking more and more like politicians.
1: Well, the good news is you're going back, excuse me, back to your role as a researcher in the field of suicidology. Yeah, what that-, is it? That,
2: is, that is good.
1: I agree. <laughs> So what is it about the field of psychology and specifically the suicide risk and prevention that first drew you to it?
2: Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I I, I, um, I started this uh, significant research uh, when I was in the military. So um, I served during the Gulf War. We actually did our first clinical trial right, right after uh, the Gulf War uh, ended. Um, and uh, as you know, uh, suicidality in the military has been a significant challenge for quite a while. Um, so I really got into the the assessment and treatment side uh, during that uh, period, so I was in for about five years um, and and really uh, became interested in um, in recognizing significant need. Uh, there just was not much available in terms of suicide specific treatment um, and suicide specific approaches. Um, and this was, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, um, got involved and have stayed involved uh, ever since, uh, given the significance of the need.
1: And what is it about this field that is such a powerful draw that could pull you back to it and away from the presidency of such a prominent university?
2: Well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one, we all have cycles, uh, certainly in our professional lives and, and in life in general. And And I simply wanted the the last phase of my professional life to be doing um, something that I've stepped away from uh, for a couple of decades as a senior administrator. Um, And it's an area where uh, even as a university president, I stayed connected doing some research. I've had funded research over the course of the last couple of decades um, in doing clinical trials. It's an area where you can make a significant difference. You know, people have asked me, uh, isn't it depressing to work with uh, people that have made suicide attempts or, uh, and to do this kind of work? And I would tell you, actually, it's the most hopeful kind of work. Um, you, you realize and recognize the significant difference it makes in the lives that it changes. You know, I have people that I worked with that I uh, treated um, when I got out of the military and worked in a tertiary care medical center. I was a full-time clinician for about a decade before I came back into academics. Um, I have people that I worked with and treated, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago that have stayed in touch with me um, over that course of time. So I would tell you, it's it's a remarkably hopeful and encouraging area where small things can make a difference um, and really impact
0: lives.
1: That's a testament, obviously, to your character, having people 25, 30 years later still staying in touch with you. Unfortunately, we've just witnessed yet another mass shooting, this time in Uvalde, Texas. As a professor of psychology, what is our mental health system missing that we're failing to identify and treat people and prevent these incidents from happening?
2: Well, I, you know, I think um, you have to look back over time. One, there just are not services available. Uh, you know, if, if you look at, uh, you can go back into the late 80s um, and there was a period, you know, history is always important. Um, and there was a there was a movement back in the late '80s um, toward community health centers um, and away from institutional uh, institutionalization, um, which was probably a good thing. Um, but what happened is many communities, many states didn't fund those community health centers, didn't fund, um, and so they privatized. Uh, and Chris, as you and I know, it, it's it's not a highly lucrative area to get into. And as a result, um, privatization reduced dramatically the availability of mental health care nationally. And the federal government and state governments never stepped up to backfill. They never stepped up to provide those services. And so what you find today uh, is you find people have very limited availability of care. If you look at uh, you know, if you if I look at my insurance coverage, um, uh, as someone who uh, you know ha- is 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 privileged to have good insurance coverage, I still have very limited mental health care coverage, as most of us do. Um, it's not something that we think about uh, in our culture, and our society, um, in, in a way comparable to medical health. We should think about physical health and mental health is uh, comparable. We should address we should address mental health issues starting in grade school, um, just like we do with physical health issues. It ought to be a part of the health curriculum from day one uh, about how to, how to maintain uh, your, your mental health as you move forward in life. We, we have a very skewed perspective, and a lot of that is because of stigma. Um, stigma around mental health uh, in Western culture and American society is a really significant challenge.
1: About a month or so ago, we had Dr. Sandy Chapman on from the University of Texas at Dallas and their brain health center. And she talked about how in the late 60s, early 70s, we started to learn that drinking and smoking is bad for you. And then the 80s, you saw the the physical health kick with President Reagan and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And now, again, to your point, hopefully this is now going to be the mental health revolution where it is top of mind. It does become part of our everyday routine uh, and, and, and treatments. And something you know, I didn't discuss before, but you know, talking about what a, a roadmap would look like, you said that both the federal and state governments did not backfill. Do you think they both need to be there? Should these be state-driven plans, federal a combination?
2: I think probably should be. It should be a combination, uh, and and we really have to start looking at comparability of coverage for mental and physical well-being. Uh, and we simply have never done that. I mean, we have, and, and the, the, you know, we don't have the same kind of criteria and standards uh, for care uh, in terms of uh, mental health care relative to physical health care. Um, we just, we really have to change our perspective and our paradigm for how we think about it and how we address it as a culture. Uh, if you look at, so one of the things I did when I worked uh, for 10 years in the in the medical is I was on faculty at Texas a College of Medicine, and so i supervised uh, residents uh, family practice residents psychiatric residents and what was remarkable is is uh, supervising family practice residents a, a full 40 to 50% of visits in family practice are mental health related they're around issues of depression and anxiety and mental health and mental well-being that don't necessarily belong in a physician's office But that's the only place to go. And if you look at the issue of suicide and suicidality, oftentimes the only place to go for many of those individuals is the emergency room. There's not a more expensive place to go that can do less for you if you're suicidal than the emergency room. We simply don't have a system that is thoughtful and caring and responsive.
1: The same question as it relates to your expertise. At least 45,979 Americans took their own lives in 2020, and there are another 1.2 million, that's 1.2 million suicide attempts. What do we do? What do we miss day in and day out? What are we failing to do that could dramatically reduce the number of suicides and suicide attempts?
2: Well, I think a number of things. I mean, I you know I think stigma is a huge problem, and and I look specifically you know a lot of my work is is with military, active military, and veterans, and stigma is 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 pronounced even more dramatically in a warrior culture in a military environment. That starts in grade school, uh, helping students understand um, overall emotional well-being. We simply don't provide outlets to help people recognize and understand emotional well-being. We teach physical well-being, um, and we do that all the way through the curriculum. But we have we have minor little points where we touch on emotional well-being and mental health. Um, and, and, and reframing that as a culture is a big challenge for us. The other thing we're going to have to take a look at um, is is uh, the availability of firearms. And so, you know, Chris, you're talking to a firearm owner. I've owned a handgun since I was in the military. Um, and I own a long gun as well. But I would tell you, those weapons are locked. They're stored. They No one has access to them but me. Um, and if we did a better job in terms of responsible firearm ownership in this country, we would have fewer deaths. Um, and dramatically fewer suicides. Um, it, it is it is a tragic thing. There are simple things we can do, but as you know, simple things become politicized and become complex things.
1: You've been doing work in the area of suicidal risk in military settings and suicidal behavior in military personnel and veterans. What have you learned so far and what have researchers yet to learn?
2: You know, I think that, um, I, I, I think, I would argue that that probably the most profound thing that I've learned um, over the years is that simple things really make a big difference. Um, and um, you know, the if you look at the treatment, uh, we've got an empirically validated treatment for suicide attempters that reduces post-treatment suicide attempt rates to about sixty percent, and it has done that consistently. It's not complex; uh, it's relatively straightforward. Um, and, and, and that I've really learned that simple things make a difference. Helping people understand their overall emotional function better, why they do the things they do, what their history has to do with that, and helping them recognize that resolving those things is not as difficult and complex as they, as they feel, um, and that it can be done very effectively. And when you look at the military and you look at veterans, um, I would say that as a country, we really have to ask ourselves questions about the cost of war. You know, when, until Afghanistan um, ended uh, just this past year, you know, we had been in conflict for two decades in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, less than 1% of the general population serves uh, in the military. Um, we really have to take a look at the cost um, of that model um, and really think about national service, think about broader uh, national service uh, as a country. I, I think we've got some really um, simple questions that need to be answered about why we do what we do and how we do it. And I don't, I, you know, my sense is we're not doing that very effectively.
1: Maybe this question is too difficult to answer. Are there parallels between what you've learned about active duty military personnel and veterans and the risks and behavior of first responders, and namely law enforcement personnel, firefighters and EMTs?
2: Yeah, absolutely, that's a great question. Uh, Yeah, there are, and and what I would tell you is, uh, one of the things that that we have found um, is um, exposure to violence and death. Uh, And so if you look at first responders, specifically, if you look at military, um, that exposure to violence and death and repeated exposure uh, creates uh, what we've called uh, the uh, capability to die. So essentially what happens is people habituate to that violence and death. Uh, they lose anxiety about violence and death, and it inhibits their ability to effectively uh, engage in what's called emotion regulation, feeling um, with emotional upset uh, and discomfort that those kind of circumstances create. And that's a part of that post-trauma syndrome that people experience, um, and it dramatically elevates risk for death by suicide. Um, Because you need to, when when you have a thought about suicide, you need to feel anxious and upset. What happens in those individuals is that habituation, that constant repeated exposure, it numbs that kind of an emotional response, which dramatically elevates the risk that they might engage in something uh, that is harmful uh, if they have a thought about suicide. If you're a gun owner, if you're a you know if you're a police officer or a soldier, and you've fired a weapon thousands of times, and you've habituated to it, you're far less likely to stop yourself if you start to engage in an act of shooting yourself. Um, that that natural barrier erodes because of that repeated exposure to trauma. Um, and then for many people, it's compounded their personal histories. Uh, what we have found is about two-thirds of those individuals had significant traumatic histories as children and adolescents. And so it's further compounded by those experiences as we get older.
1: And your point a few moments ago, it goes back to elementary school.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we, we, learn, we, we learn important things early in life uh, that become rigid and inflexible the older we get. And, and risk is wrapped into that.
1: I would think that even as you and your colleagues approach suicide as clinicians, it must take some personal toll on you. How do you protect your own emotional and mental well-being?
2: Yeah, no question about it. Uh, it does absolutely. Um, it, by having a, a good network, I mean I, you know I've I've known my wife since I was fourteen. Uh, we've been married. Uh, we've been married uh, over thirty-five years. Um, and, and thank goodness I have a, a wonderful uh, relationship and somebody to rely on. Uh, and then I have a professional network of people I've worked with for decades now um, that I can lean on and rely on. Um, that's what emotion regulation is all about, dealing with exposure to trauma. Uh, clinicians that work with people that have experienced trauma uh, can experience secondary trauma uh, in the treatment process. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the things we don't always do well is take care of ourselves. Um, you know, and, and, and decide at what points we need to make changes, uh, in our lives. Um, and, uh, I think being able to do that, uh, and create that kind of flexibility, uh, in our lives is, is really important, but having people that we love and care about around us, that we can engage, uh, that we can engage with, um, and, and, um, uh, that that's essential, I think, for all of us.
1: You've served as a consultant to organizations worldwide, including the United States Air Force and Army and the Department of Defense here in the, in the U.S., and even the Beijing Suicide Prevention and Research Center in China. What is it that organizations with such vast resources don't know and can't figure out?
2: Well, I think for all of us, I think you know one of the things that that I learned um, in in leading a large organization. Um, is sometimes it's 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 not that they don't know but it always helps to have somebody from the outside come in and tell you that what you um, have had difficulty implementing because of politics or internal bureaucracy are things that really make a difference and when in the case of suicide um, actually uh, can result in lives being saved if you make those changes I think that's critical Uh, And so that's why I think outside consultants uh, can be helpful. But more often than not, uh, most of those organizations know what they really need to do. They just need to hear somebody say
0: it. It's no
2: different, Chris. It's no different than today with the shooting that happened in Uvalde. Um, Congress knows what they need to do. Um, They just need the public to demand it.
1: Well, and to that point, you mentioned earlier about how divisive the country is right now. And I've been saying the same thing for a couple of years. And the unfortunate thing is I think my own personal opinion, here's my disclaimer, that, you know, you've got the five or 10% on each extreme of the parties, they're the ones in the bully pulpit with the microphone. And the, the majority of us, I'll say the 80% of the rest of America, sure, we're going to disagree, but we're going to be able to come to some agreements, you know, find some middle roads or some commonality just to, to solve it and move forward. What can we do now to demand of our politicians to come back towards the middle and start talking to each other instead of yelling through the speakerphone?
2: Yeah, I, you know, tragically, I think that I, I think we have limited options. I, you know, I think that at at some point, um, the the uh, the options we we have to vote uh, as a starting point, and we have to make demands um, on those individuals. We have to engage. I mean, you know, part of the challenge is that American politics has become, and I think politics probably globally um, have become so distasteful. Uh, that people don't want to engage. but it's at critical moments like this that that if we don't engage, we're going to lose the very freedoms that we have. Um, and i I would suggest a step further. I mean, not just vote but start to make demands. i I do think we need to to look seriously uh, at term limits. Uh, we don't need people in Congress for forty years. Um, and and I think that's a part of the challenge and and, and it's a refusal to recognize. Um, that. If you look at the U.S. Constitution, I don't think the founders ever anticipated people would spend their entire career um, in Washington. Uh, The model was a public service model. It was about servant leadership. That means you serve your time and then you move on.
1: Never in our nation's history has been more important for people to get involved and to vote to take action and demand way more than they're getting from their elected officials right now. And that's, again, my disclaimer and my, my commercial. So David, we have just a few minutes remaining in our conversation. We've been talking about a very difficult topic. What do you tell people to give them cause for hope, whether they're facing their own mental health challenges or those of a family member or friend?
2: You, you know, I, I say a couple of things uh, for people that that are, um, that are experiencing hopelessness and, and feel overwhelmed. And, and, and um, one, um, always reach out and talk with someone. Um, that that really it, it is critical not to um not to uh, ex- have your experience being an isolated one but always reach out there there are avenues there's a national um helpline the the 1800 273 talk line always reach out and talk with someone uh in those critical moments um and then i reinforce for people that time makes a big difference uh, that sometimes just simply waiting uh can make a big difference. And that's where reaching out and trying to get support from others, talk with others allows you um, more time. Um, And feelings change. I mean, from from minute to minute, from hour to hour and from day to day, and give give yourself time to do that. Um, And then I always encourage people that treatment actually works. Treatment works, it's effective. Um, and the vast majority of problems that people experience, we have effective interventions and treatments that make a big difference. Um, and if you looked at the, if you look at it scientifically, uh, they make profound difference uh, for individuals. And then the last thing I remind people is in the midst of a crisis, you need to make sure that you're taking care of yourself and that you're safe. Um, And so for people that are suicidal, if they have firearms, to always make sure that you store firearms safely and responsible ownership. And um, and if you're willing to give up a firearm during periods of acute crisis, that's a critical thing to do, but a minimum, make sure that it's secure, that you allow yourself time. Everybody deserves time to try to work their way through a problem. Um, That life is an enormously precious thing. Uh, and give yourself time uh, to work through and address the issues. And if you pursue a treatment, treatment actually helps. Um, and there are plenty of people out there willing and able to help.
1: Doctor, M. David Rudd. Thanks so much for being us today. Hey, My pleasure. No, pleasure is mine. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek public figure and on Twitter at Chris Meek underscore USA. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.